0: Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Today's guest's name is Todd Ganos. Todd is a partner at Integrated Wealth Council, and he is the brain surgeon of today's complex estate and tax planning. Through Todd and his team's skill sets, they claim that they can reduce the transition tax costs of selling your business up to 80 some percent and protecting your overall estate taxes by up to 90%. And the way he does it is nothing like I've ever seen and his designations and his skill sets have come from a lot of different areas which allows him to have this overall global view of planning, but it's not just his expertise that makes Todd unique it's his approach and how he handles this complex planning that is something like I've I've never seen. So throughout the interview, Todd gives us a lot of wisdom and a lot of gold nuggets about what you should be thinking about when you're bringing on advisors to your team, the different possibilities that are out there when you're planning for a transition. So without further ado, here's Todd Ganos. Enjoy this conversation because it is down to the truth about who you're working with and what you should be expecting and what kind of things you can do when you're planning. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Todd, how are you doing today? Very good. How are you doing? Doing good. I appreciate you coming on the Life After Business show. Well, thanks uh,
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I am really excited for today's episode because uh, as um, the listeners will know, we met each other at one of the exit planning summits and I got to watch your breakout and you've got a very interesting background and I couldn't wait to reach out to you and um, kind of pick your brain, but also hear some of the expertise and the stories that you've got. And before we kind of kick it off, we want to give the listeners a little bit of a background of your expertise and then also integrated wealth and uh, where you guys uh, play today in the market.
1: Sure, sure. So... Um... So our firm actually has been around for over 40 years. Uh, it was founded by a, uh, uh, an individual who had been a trust investment officer at a, I'll say a major bank. And, um, and then approximately 16 or 17 years ago, uh, I joined the firm. And the firm was originally uh, a wealth management firm. But very quickly, uh, because I have a uh, a legal and tax background, our clients began asking us about tax planning and estate planning and also serving as trustee. And so very quickly, the firm began to uh, take on these other service roles. And eventually, it became clear to us that our big value add uh, was in the area of tax planning and trustee services. And we began to divest our, uh, our investment arm. And so really now for a fair number of years, our focus has been on the tax planning and uh, trustee services. And then in particular, uh, where our real focus is, is on the seller's Of middle market companies and you might say well you know why specifically that well as it turns out 70% of all wealth in the United States now this I'm going to tell you defies common belief but 70% of all wealth in the United States is in the hands of first-generation business owners It is not the elite families because usually the kids blow the money. So only about 5% of all wealth in the United States is held by, you know, what a lot of uh, political people call the elite families. Only 5%. Uh, There's a huge attrition rate within family wealth. So it became clear to us that if we wanted to really focus on preserving wealth – it was on helping these middle market business owners maintain their wealth. And the big attrition comes with taxes. So okay. that's kind of how we evolved.
0: And that, that word, I think, always perks up everybody's ears, especially the middle market or anybody that owns a business, right? Because taxes are the, the things that, it's a, it's really the, the, the one piece that makes or breaks it or swings the needle.
1: Oh, sure. Um, and you know, just to tell a quick war story, um, uh, we had a, an individual call, um, and you know, there's ways to hold your ownership in a, in a business. There's a way to structure your the business itself, whether it's a corporation, a C corp, S corp, LSE, whatever. And and what had happened was this gentleman's father had died. The father had owned a business, and. At the end of it, they were gonna see uh about forty cents on the dollar uh of the of the value of the company between the estate tax and all these other things combined. It was just really a mess and it's a cry and shame that's all I can say is 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 i mean that's kind of the harshest example is you know forty percent net proceeds
0: so and, and it's enough to that's that's a big enough gap to have some specific attention to and you know so you mentioned when you were kind of explaining your your firm about the preservation of wealth and i i think that term gets used so much but i know your what you do is so comprehensive and so detailed but can you give our listeners uh, your definition of preserving wealth
1: well so you know as i mentioned we we are not in the investment business and so whoever the Um, the individual's uh, investment person is that's they have their version of wealth preservation. So what we do is, is we help families to structure the ownership of their business uh, for asset protection purposes. Okay. So if individuals, uh, you know, get sued or whatever, um, we protect the ownership of the business um, from potentially, uh, you know, opportunistic litigants, and then the second thing is is uh, to help preserve in terms of tax mitigation. Um, oftentimes, uh, so let's just take a California resident because California is kind of the poster child for tax.
0: It's, <laughs> the, it's the most uh, beautiful examples when you're get, given uh, the case studies, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah. So if we're talking about a pure capital gain scenario, so we're not and I'll get into this in a second, but if it's just a pure share sale and all we're looking at is capital gain tax, um, a California resident between state and federal are going to pay about thirty four percent combined tax on on the gain and so one of the things that we would do is is to reduce that combined tax rate uh, to let's just say 24% on gain. Now that's the sort of the simplest uh, sort of example where we might be able to eliminate state level income tax. The second area, and I'll throw out another example. There there was a, a gentleman who owned a uh, a garbage company. <laughs> Not sexy, but it was a cash flower, let me tell you, uh, in the Midwest. And the thing was, was that uh, he had a lot of accumulated depreciation, both in real estate and then property uh, and, and uh, plant and equipment, a lot of trucks. And when you sell depreciated assets, um, you, you have re- recapture. Now, on real estate, uh, recapture is a different rate than on non-real estate recapture. But in either case, it's higher than the capital gain rate. And when the gentleman's CPA told him how much in tax he was going to pay, uh, he said, I'm not selling. I can't afford to pay those taxes. I mean, and the effective tax rate for him was going to be close to 50 percent on the recapture portion. So there's things that you can do to mitigate that, to change that from, we'll just say, um, this recapture rate down to a capital gain rate. And so these are examples where um, tax mitigation uh, is reducing the effective tax rate. You know, it's not the elimination of tax, but it's the reduction of tax.
0: Well, and I I want to dive into that because um, at the uh, breakout session, as I was watching your presentation, and I think probably a lot of our listeners, um, because me too, at at some point before really diving into this whole world, is like, okay, what is that, you know, because everybody thinks that their CPA can wave this magic wand and get rid of taxes. And I, I believe that that is untrue because you can't just eliminate taxes without doing the work that you do. And I think your your work is very unique because of it being cross-functional. And by cross-functional, I'll let you kind of elaborate on that. But to kind of tee it up for you, uh, for our listeners... When I was watching you, I mean, you literally had this entire whiteboard bubble sheet going on in your in your presentation about how you were moving assets into different things in order to make this happen. So it's more like an, a Rubik's Cube than it is just getting rid of it without the, waving the magic wand on the tax return. So I think to tee it up, can you explain how you approach the cross-functional? And, and it's I think it's a, ba- a combination of your background and the education yeah. you've got and how that affects the advice and how you're structuring these solutions instead of just the siloed approach.
1: Okay. Well, yeah. Um, So what I, what I like to say is, is that this is very specialized and it is brain surgery. Okay. (laughs) That now I'll say that there are a lot of attorneys out there and a lot of CPAs out there who work with clients but they tend to focus on, on the day-to-day issues. So in, in fairness, they are the general practitioner, and, and so to give an example um, is let's pretend that uh, we're talking with a CPA, and we ask the CPA, uh, how many clients of yours have rental property? Oh, uh, a lot. How many times do you get a phone call every year where your client with the rental property says, oh, I just had to replace the furnace or the water heater. And I want to know if I can do a 179 deduction on it or if I have to depreciate it over five years, seven years, 10 years. How do I how do I treat that? How do I expense that? And if you ask a CPA, how many times a year do you get that question? They're going to say, I get that, you know, 10, 20, 30 times a year. Okay. Now ask them, how many times do you get a phone call from one of your clients that says, I have a $5 million business of sale, a 10 million, whatever it is, and I need you to do the tax planning. And when we get into the you know, the larger numbers, they may say, in my career, I may have one or two. That's it. So, usually, the CPA is going to be very knowledgeable about keeping the books and the issues inside the company, and whether this property is depreciated this way or that way. But when it comes to the owner's perspective on selling the company, they don't really uh, do that so much, and and this is where the specialization comes in, and and so you know, in fairness, again to the CPAs and the attorneys out there, what's going to happen is, is acknowledging that they get the you know the call about the water heater or the or the furnace all the time, and they don't really get the calls about I'm selling my business. Um, where they're going to spend their continuing education is on the issues related to the depreciability of the water heater and the furnace. They're not going to go out and learn a very complex strategy uh, that they may only employ you know two or three times in their whole career. So that's why the typical CPA and attorney is going to be unfamiliar. Uh, with this. Now, we certainly do not want to take the place of the client, CPA, or attorney. And so this is where we get into this collaborative um, uh, effort. So,
0: so, and I, I want to kind of uh, dive into a couple of those things because, you know, how many lines of tax code are there? I mean, I, I couldn't even begin to well,
1: guess. Well, um uh, I have a copy, so nowadays I usually go online, but I guess <laughs> have... by
0: this size of a tree.
1: Yeah. So th- there's not just the Internal Revenue Code, and that's for you know, the feds. Uh, you also have the states, uh, but with the feds, you also have these things called the tax regulations. And that's, if you think the Internal Revenue Code is big, the tax regulations, which is how the IRS and the Treasury Department see implementing the Internal Revenue Code, that is roughly five times the size. Holy cow! Okay, okay. I mean, it it is big.
0: Well, and then how many times has it changed? To and the reason I'm asking these questions is because when you talk about continuing ed, right? You know, so for our listeners who are the the entrepreneurs and the business owners, they're continuing ed as entrepreneurs mine being an entrepreneur is market research right so that's what you're constantly digging up on to see the new competitors the new things that are that are bubbling up and you know the attorneys the CPAs and anybody with a designation has got a certain amount of hours they got to do every year yeah. and where they spend their time like you said Todd is important because so many things change every year and that is like a brain surgeon to go back to your analogy, not knowing that there's a new tool out that has a hundred percent accuracy and they're using one that's got
1: 30%. Yeah. And, and so, um, the, when we talk about the, and I'll use the broader term disposition of a business, because the disposition might be a sale to a third party or it might be within the family. And each of those, Two scenarios has very different um, uh, planning methodologies, but uh, you're right. the The tax code and the the uh, well, the tax code does have changes from uh, time to time, and then the treasury regulations uh, can change. But what's really important is uh, the the tax court. The United States tax court cases, and this is where the IRS will challenge a particular strategy that's being used. And and it's only after uh, seeing the result of the court cases, because ultimately it's the courts that interpret the law. What did Congress really mean when it put in, you know, section one, two, three, four, it. I see the, and this is what the court says. I see the language now. What does that really mean? <laughs> so the courts, yeah. And when you find out, you tell me.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to be the first to do it? Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it's the courts that interpret the law, and, and so, uh, and so for example, you know, th- there will be you know some uh, uh, people who try to implement a particular strategy, and then you know the courts rule on the side of the IRS. On the other hand, there are specific transfers within the family that when they occur in a certain way, and and it's, you know, how it's the language is specifically written in the transfer document, but where the IRS has lost 100% of the time, okay? And it's just, I mean, and the court The task court has just made it emphatically clear, you know, read my lips. This is how we are going to rule on this going forward. If it's if this type of language is used, this is how and I've gotta say there's been a dozen cases on you know this particular item. So what one really needs to do. Well, first off, what one really needs to do is, is when they're going to be doing the, the tax structuring for a business disposition, they really need to specialize in it. Whoever the professional is, they, they really need to do it all day long as opposed to, oh, you know, every other year someone calls me and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll dig out the book and I'll kind of read through it. The other part of it is, is exactly what you were saying about the continuing education – And so not that you're necessarily going to get, you know, a certificate with continuing education hours written on it, but you have to look to see what's going on with the tax court cases to see what is going to hold up. Uh, Now, the other side of it is, and this is actually the way that we do business, okay, instead of an I gotta tell you, there are a lot of practitioners out there that, you know, they approach it. Well, you know, this should work. Yeah, no, this this really should work. And and two years ago at at a business exit planning conference, uh, I sat down at you know one of the tables at lunch, and there was a CPA there that that said, sat down. Whoa, boy, we we have reason to celebrate. Oh, what's that? Well, we just passed the six-year mark on our, our transaction, this one transaction. Well, that refers to a specific statute of limitations that deals with misreporting transactions. And I thought to myself, is that the way you do planning? You know, my gosh. So what we do is, is we circumvent all of this malarkey about, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? There's actually a process where you can go to the Internal Revenue Service, and it's their office. What's called the Office of Chief Counsel. It's their head head legal staff, and you apply for what's called a private letter ruling, and you say you lay it out in front of them, and you say this is the transaction or the structure that we're anticipate doing. Okay, and so it's an advance of the transaction, or you know, putting any money into a structure, and you say we believe, given this, that it will result in tax characteristic A, B, C, and D, and what will happen is is the IRS will respond uh, to that individual and say that they either agree, disagree, or refuse to comment on A, B, C, and D. Now if you then get a response back that is in agreement with the the characteristics that you in your re- ruling request say that you believe is if they agree with you you're good to go because once the IRS grants you that they cannot then go back and say oh sorry we're going to change our mind okay because <laughs> yeah, they got you got their approval that's right and I'm gonna tell you, it it's a it's a different ball game. If if an issue comes up in audit, they have no idea what the taxpayer's state of mind was, if they were, you know, truly believed or if they were trying to pull something. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you go in advance to the IRS and lay everything out, and essentially you're saying Mother May I. They're saying, well, wait a second. This taxpayer is trying to do it right. They're coming to us and and getting agreement on the principles ahead of time. And what I have found is when you go for one of these advanced rulings, both the IRS and the Treasury attorneys, and they are two separate entities, but they are very collegial in the process. and, And they say, you know, if there's a way for us to give this to you and help help you comply with the law, we're going to help you out. And so it's it, it's just a it's a different world when when you go for an advanced ruling. They,
0: I'd love to see the look on their face when someone's like not trying to pull one over on them and actually trying to work with them. <laughs> like what the reactions would be like.
1: Well, so I gotta tell you, um, the, the IRS uh, they have an entire. Um, team of attorneys who do nothing but review these these things. Um, and I would I would say that in um, in the course of a year, you know, they probably release, you know a couple thousand at least private letter rulings because some of the rulings, irrespective of, you know, like a business disposition, It might be, as an example, General Electric going to them, talking about, you know, some aspect about their own tax return or a foreign subsidiary or, you know, who knows. Mm -hmm. But so, I mean, these letter rulings really cover any taxpayer, corporate, business, individual who is looking for, you know, in essence, uh, advanced um, an, an advanced opinion on this particular item. Um, so, uh, so I, I think, you know, the process is, uh, what's well, it's, it's r- routine it's, for them now. <laughs> it's routine
0: for them, but you know, not a lot of advisors. And so one, one thing that I want to kind of, demystify for our listeners is, you know, as we're talking about these advanced plannings, quote unquote, right? So we're talking taxes, corporate structures, estate planning, like all these different things that really business owners either know because they got burned or they had someone else that was talking to them. So I don't think a lot of these subjects are overly, um, Overly exposed to the owner, and uh, it, and just to kind of a little bit of a story uh, without going too much into it. But after watching your presentation, my dad and I realized based on the bubble chart that you had on that presentation is we had probably upwards of seven figures that you know we would have in our pocket had we planned correctly. But it was a combination. I mean, there's no way we would have known. It's all hindsight bias. But it was how you had the corporate structure and some estate planning with some trusts and the tax planning behind it. So there's so many different variables in it, but can, can you yeah. kind of distill it down to, hey, if you're a business owner with these things, here's kind of the, the architecture of the, what this advanced planning looks like?
1: Okay, so um, so the first thing that I'll say is is there, there is no cookie cutter solution. Everything is going to hinge on a specific business owner's specific situation, okay, and circumstances. You can't come in and say, you know, like, go to Office Depot and get a standard form printed that they have there for sale for a lease or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, One little change uh can completely alter the the structure that the business owner wants to have in place so that's the first thing and and uh before I you know get into um you know like a a specific item i want to uh piggyback on something you just said about that this is not overly talked about and so um uh so one particular structure that we use um has been around for about 20 years and there have now been over 80 eight zero, favorable rulings from the internal revenue service on these structures okay 80 so this is i mean i I want to I want to say that while it involves you know you know complex stuff um, this is not like it's, you know, oh my gosh, new and exciting. This has been around for, for two decades now. And, um, and along the line of the, what you just said, that what happened with your family, that we know an investment advisor in California who has a client and they had us talk with their client. And the client had a medical device company that he ended up selling two years ago. He specifically asked his CPA about using a Nevada structure, uh, and that's what we use, a ne- particular Nevada structure to help him save taxes. And the CPA said, oh no, you can't do that. Gosh. I mean, didn't even investigate it. And, and in a similar case, there, uh, we know a, a principal at a partner at a, at a reasonably sized CPA firm right in the heart of Silicon Valley, uh, with 80 people. Okay. So pretty good sized, uh, CPA firm. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking with the, this partner who had been practicing for 35 years, um, Uh, said, oh my gosh, this stuff is real. And this is when we were showing the the list of private letter rulings on on this one particular structure. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what do you mean, oh, this is real? And the CPA said, well, you know, last year, we lost a client that had been with us for 20 years, because another CPA firm was talking to him about this structure, and we said no way. You know, this is this is some crazy thing that you know these
0: uh, they're making up know, or whatever. right that, that, Yeah, <laughs> it,
1: it's a scam. Stay away from it. Okay. So, um, but I mean, the fact is is that there are structures, there are things that can be done, and so <clears throat> excuse me in the in the simplest case, um, and. This does depend on the state of residency of of the business owner, but in general, there is a particular type of trust that one can create, and because the rules related to income tax and estate tax are different, you can actually create a trust that... The assets of the trust still remain in mom and dad's estate for estate tax purposes. And mom and dad get to decide who gets the money when they die. But for income tax purposes, the trust pays its own income tax as opposed to mom and dad paying the income tax. And because the trust is a Nevada resident for tax purposes, it is pays tax as a nevada resident and by the way nevada has no income tax ain't
0: that convenient
1: (laughs) yes now you're still subject to federal tax of course but what you're able to do is is and again this varies from state to state but if you're a california resident a colorado resident and so on and so forth uh massachusetts You are able to move your ownership of your company to the Nevada Trust. It is not a taxable event when you do it. And then subsequently, when the trust sells the business, it sells the business as a Nevada resident and you're able to sidestep state level income tax. So that's the (laughs) simplest of of strategies. There's other things that come into play um, that uh, you you might be able to uh, reduce the the federal tax as well. And then there's the thing that I mentioned about recapture that would pull in another component of the, um, uh, different from this trust itself to deal with recapture of depreciated property and so on. So there's other little components that could feed on, but but you know, the simplest structure is mom and dad transfer their ownership interest into this trust, and then when the trust sells the, uh, the business, you eliminate state level
0: income tax. So mean- that's, that's a simple example. Which is a significant amount of money, first of all, and you know, depending on the size of the business. Um, but I think it, it was a per- what you just gave is a perfect basic example of how all the different things matter, from the corporate structure to where the ownership is residing to the the estate plan and the trust plan. So, again, what you're advising on is the global family picture. And you're not just doing a tax return or doing an estate plan, making sure that, you know, because the biggest frustration I have with when I uh, speak to owners is they've got ingrained in them through insurance salespeople or estate planners that you need to make sure that you have enough insurance to pay for the taxes when you die. And that's what an estate plan is to people, and it just drives me nuts.
1: Well, um, so one thing, okay, one thing that I'll say is, is, Is um, you know, insurance has its place. But what I also say is is the the skilled the skilled uh, practitioner generally can design an estate in such a manner where you probably don't need the insurance. Is the thing. So, uh, and I mean, I, I'm not a real big fan of, of insurance, uh, but um, but the thing the thing is is if things are, I mean, there are there are absolutely situations where someone does you know need insurance, okay. But again, the for skilled planners, uh, you, you probably don't need it well, and you, you, t- use other methods.
0: Well, to to jump in there too is, I think insurance is important if you don't have the skilled people working on your side because you still would prefer to be covered. But it you're paying you're paying the whether you pay the skilled advanced planner like yourself or you pay the insurance person you're still paying for it, right? And yeah, and I think one thing that I want to I want to dive into a little bit with you is, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of follow the money and you find the motivation and. I I, leave, I I live all of my relationships like that because I do believe that everybody is inherently good, but, I mean, you got to figure out how they feed their family, right? And then you figure out, okay, how is it that that drives their continuing ed or what they're recommending for you and how they collaborate with their other advisors? And so can you give an example like how the incentive, I don't know if I think you and I have uh, talked about some examples in the past where the different incentives conflict with the, the collaboration and over the, over the general plan and what the owner can kind of do to facilitate that. Cause he's got to be his own advocate.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, this is going to be a, a real life story. So, um, so oftentimes, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, the, the, the business owners own attorney and and CPA are unfamiliar with you know the the issues related to MA, mergers and acquisitions. And so a lot of times what will happen is is the the CPA or the attorney will say, Well, you know, we need to bring someone in who's kind of a specialist in this area. And um, and so where, um, and I'm not going to mention any firm names, but I'll just say big firms. Um, the The big firms, I, I had an actual uh, CPA. It was a tax partner uh, in, in the Silicon Valley office of uh, a major CPA firm. And this person said to me directly, you know, even though we might be retained by the business seller. We really don't care about them. We don't. Now, of course, well, we'll we'll get to the conflict of interest and the ethics violations in a second, and I think it'll become very evident. He said to me, you know, and the reason is, is because that business seller has one deal in their life, whereas If we are representing the buyer, which might be a private equity company, it might be a public, um, you know, another company, they're feeding us 10 deals a year. That's where we get our revenue. And that's whose interest we really look after. Okay. So now, I mean, in my mind, that's a professional ethics violation, but a CPA told me about a deal that he was working on. And in his particular case, he was representing the buyer. And he was his job is due diligence. And he interfaced with a specialist CPA who came in to help the seller out. And what he saw the the seller's CPA doing is is re-categorizing a couple hundred thousand dollars of cash sitting in the company. So normally you sell a company, you know, the, the, the owner keeps the cash and you sell off the assets. Okay. That's, that's a typical uh, transaction. Well, what the CPA was doing was Saying, no, we've got it. That's, that's backing up this, this liability that's over here. And so that has to go to the seller or to the buyer. Well, no, it doesn't do that. And, and what was happening was, and when the CPA that I was talking with, who was really representing the buyer, you know, said, well, wait a second, you know, wh- why are you doing that? He said, because the next time around I want to get the assignment from the private equity firm that you're representing and so I'm doing them a favor by giving them recategorizing this couple hundred thousand bucks now I would argue that that crosses a legal line there <laughs> you think <laughs> yeah my god um, but there are there are all of these conflicts and the same thing with the with the law firms okay The law firms that, oh, yeah, we'll handle your transaction for you. Owners have to know that if they are using a specialist firm, and you need to use specialists, but when you're using specialist firms, whether it's a CPA or it's a a law firm, they get 10 to 20 deals a year uh, from any, uh, you know, big company who's buying others, uh, other companies, or private equity firms, or whatever, and and they are naturally inclined to look after their interests rather than yours. And I think that's kind of maybe something that your own family has has experienced. But but this is a big problem. It's a big problem. So you know, uh, keep going. Oh well, I was going to say, and and you know, and and uh, well. I, I think your your family has experienced it.
0: Well, and I, and that's kind of what I was going to jump in with. What 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 I experienced with my dad and I, and I and I th- and I think I can relate a lot to our listeners. Where, and even me so more so with uh, just my age when I was in all these meetings because uh, it was me, and my dad in the trenches together. Right, so I'm sitting in these meetings with all these bankers, these M and A advisors. You got business brokers, the attorneys, uh, CPA firms, and I always feel in, in, inferior based on my knowledge, which I should, because they all should be way smarter in their designations than me. And you know, I think when I realized it wasn't just not only me and my age, but all owners, we're very, entrepreneurs are very uh, control freaks, right? We like to control the meetings, the situations, and the moment that we sit down in front of advisors, it just freaks you out because you're like, this guy's going to scam me because he knows more than me. Right? So I mean it, unfortunately some of these stories prove that point. However, all of these people are necessary and there's a lot of really good people. And so how what we what we experienced was not there was no one looking at the whole picture, right? So we're just there we didn't know what questions to ask. Like, hey, by the way, we've got this corporate structure. Should you look at this? Like it's not our job, right? But whose job is it then and how do you how do you align all these people and kind of hold everybody in check?
1: yeah so this is really where the exit planner comes in, um, uh, or the um, or the m and a advisor who is not the investment banker, who is not the CPA firm, who is not the the law firm. This is a a, a specialized advisor whose sole job is to really walk you through, walk the owner through the process. And so they, you know, they, they don't have necessarily the, the conflicted interests that the others might have. So their, their real job is, is to walk you through the process. So we are very familiar. My team is very familiar with the process. We don't want to do the quarterbacking. What we will do though, is, is you know, from the sidelines, I mean, if if we see something that does look a little strange, we'll certainly tell the the, the business owner. But um, but we really advocate the business owner have a, a specialized exit planner. Then, what we what our function really is 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 the, the the tax and asset protection component of of the deal, and then the subsequent you know ownership of the proceeds. So, I would I would say where we where we really um, uh, go hand in hand with is is with the with the exit planner. Um, it, as many um, as many investment banks and boutique investment banks who are familiar with with what we do, you know, their their interf- their real client is is not the seller it's the um it's the, it's the buyer yeah. It, it, yeah it's a buyer i mean if we're talking about an actual investment bank mm-hmm. so because it, look they, they're right re, they ready buyer is probably going to be a private equity firm okay they they go to the private equity firm with 10 deals a year now not all of them get done but but uh but that's who they're gonna really cater to so so for us I mean, we don't see the investment banker necessarily coming to us, you know it's like yeah I mean, if they sort of think about it, maybe they will but but really the 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 team uh really would be um uh focused on on the exit planner as as the quarterback
0: well having someone that doesn't actually have someone else's hand in their pocket right <laughs> correct yeah and so yeah. one thing that i want to uh uh touch on before um we take off is so what i end up telling and i'd like your ver- validation or uh or elaboration on this so what i end up telling a lot of um owners that i work with are like well everybody seems to like dive right into the technical stuff or like, hey, I can do this move or this tactic and it may or may not even be applicable to them, right? So it's all hearsay with all these technical stuff. What I end up saying to people, owners, because this is what my dad and I didn't do correctly, is what do you want, right? And I know it sounds so fluffy and like vague, but it's like, what do you want from your legacy to your actual wealth to where your your business goes? Because I believe that if you've got – the, so I've got three things that I keep saying is if you've got the time, you've got the financial stability, and you've got the effort left, you can really reverse into almost anything. And how that's done is a lot of different ways. I don't know if you want to elaborate off of that or how you've seen interactions with your clients or examples about that.
1: Well, so – I mean, you, you're actually bringing up a lot of different issues uh, that that come into play. So uh, the the question of um, what, you know what do you want uh, really um, so many times when a family owned business is is being uh, uh, sold, uh, there first off, this is the owner's baby, okay. And it, it, it's like take, you know, your child going off to college and multiply it by 10. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. It, there's a lot of emotion that's going on. And you, the thing that you said that, well, you know, you got this, the owners tend, tend to, you know, like to control things a lot. And, and the thing is, is you're letting go here. And, and there's gonna be a lot of self doubt, am I doing the right thing and so on. The other thing that happens is in the broader family, in the broader family, uh, whether it's a sale to a third party or if it's going to you, you know, ultimately transfer over to a next generation, there's a lot of emotion that's going on in the family. And if there is going to be a transfer within the family, there's going to be – well, I'll just say family dynamics
0: going on. (laughs) Um, Use your imagination, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, because if there's going to be some family members who are in in the business, some who are not, how do do we all make things equitable for everyone in the picture? So the human side – of the equation is really the, the the bigger thing, and and so I mean get in touch with your feelings and all that fluffy stuff you mentioned, but it really ends up being the bigger part of it. the the, the technical side of things uh, is important, but the very issues you're you're hitting upon are are really the, the main issues. and and the question is is you know what do, what do you want to do the rest of your life Um, and so the, the, the more technical stuff that I do on the tax and asset protection side is important and it gives the, the business owner the freedom to do, you know, whatever it is they, they want to do. But there is the, the important question. And I mean, I know, uh, I mean, a couple different individuals who only specialize on the emotional side mm-hmm. of of m and a they're they're not even doing the transaction and the plan- they're just handling the emotions of the family okay, so that's kind of interesting
0: well i mean i I can relate because it is all' i mean it's all emotional you know when you when it really comes down to the 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 final goal line i mean it it emotion drives the entire bus and like that's why I say you know once you figure out where you stand and what you want you can technically build you know reverse back into your your wishes and again i know that's not a lot of people like to hear because it's so vague but you know figuring out the 6 inches between your ears is the most important part and you know the other thing that
1: that i'll say is is whether it's the soft side of planning or the transaction itself or the or the tax side of things. Uh, a business owner has to be thinking about all of these things well before they're thinking about actually doing the sale. So with some of the tax things, I mean, if you already have your, your, sell, your buyer identified, you've, you've foregone a lot of the tax savings you'd be able to do. And I won't get into a lot of technical jargon, but you need to actually have your your ownership structure and whatnot, tax plan in place before you start to shop your business, okay? Is essential. And and so similarly addressing the the uh, the emotional side of, of the sale and so forth and what often happens is, is one day a business owner wakes up and says, "You know, I'm there. I need to sell," and and then they start the process. and uh, And there are things that can be done. So forget about the tax stuff for a second. There's stuff that an exit planner can be doing like you know cleaning up the financials to get them in a at a point where you know the buyer looks at, oh this is great as opposed to well you know what's this thing going on here okay so there's there's things that really need to be done before you start shopping y- your company and and the the more time you have ahead of um, ahead of the deal and so forth the the better off you're going to be whether it's again from the tax side or the you know any any other part of it
0: well and i and i to just kind of put a bow on it too i mean just in practical terms and i think it was an example you gave at the breakout session but I mean, if you were to go to the IRS to a private court ruling or whatever how, whatever you named it is, yeah. you can't do that if you've already got a buyer to the table necessarily, because you have to have all this stuff in, in place, right? Where it's not like, yeah. oh, I'm going to move my corporate structure after I got my deal in the place because it looks like shenanigans, right? I mean, it's just kind of common sense.
1: Yeah. It, there's, there's something called the assignment of income doctrine. I, I, I won't bore everyone with an explanation of it, but th- what it really means is, is if you got a deal on the table... You're done. Okay. You're done. So yeah, you, you, you need to do this stuff ahead of time. And, and, you know, so like the stuff that I do, someone could have a structure in place sort of waiting there. And then, uh, then when you then begin to shop the firm, then you, you know, you're ready, everything's in place, but this is, so this is the, the common failure for for a lot of business owners Uh, and it relates to whether it's the issues related to the exit planning uh, what you do or the tax stuff you you're saying you know what i am going to do all that planning everything they tell me i am going to do but you know what i got five years to go and so i don't need to be doing it now and then what happens is is the letter comes in And it says, we're going to pay you 10 times revenue for your firm, okay, or whatever it is. But the deal, you cannot pass up because it's never coming again, okay? And so, but you've said, well, oh, but you know what? I'm not selling for five years, so I'm not going to do any of this planning. Okay. You have to have all of this planning, the exit plan, the tax planning in place Ready for the out of the blue offer that you cannot turn down?
0: Do you have any idea how many deals end up in motion because of the out of blue offer? Um, I don't. I did talk with.
1: Uh, I mean, like in terms of of percentage.
0: Well, yeah. I'm the only reason I'm asking is because it just like we get that that from what that was our situation. I mean, that, I I know that's a lot of people's situation where. Randomly, whether well, it's a third party, a private equity, a strategic buyer, like some reason, someone came across that person's company and then threw an offer out there. And I gotta believe it's a big percentage versus the people that actually bring their company to market.
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, one one individual who is an investment banker on the East Coast, a, a boutique banker, um, uh, we were talking about this very subject and. Uh, and while a percentage was not thrown out, uh, he he says it's 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 very very common. Like you know you know the maybe a quarter or a third of the deals that that he sees uh, are are of this out of the blue, mm-hmm. and and you know you're
0: stuck um, at that point. So. In order to kind of keep on pace, what is one thing that we haven't touched on that you'd leave our, uh, our listeners, the business owners of the U.S. with for things to, to take into consideration or things to do? What would be the one thing that you should, you should leave them with?
1: Well, uh, really, they, they need to be talking with, with an exit planner who's going to be the quarterback, um and really get that person online to help them through the process um that that's what i would say I love is, the plug by the way <laughs> yeah no but i mean the, the you have the 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 person who is in um who does nothing but help help a business owner through the whole process and these are the steps you need to be doing. And before we even bring the, the investment bank person in the picture, we, we need to do all these things to clean up your books, uh, make sure like payroll taxes are paid or if, if you and if the business is a retailer, make sure that all of the sales tax is done because, you know, just a quick note. Let's say that you uh, sell stuff on the internet and somehow, some way, uh, you sell stuff to, I'm just picking this up, Wisconsin. And Wisconsin says that, well, you know, even though you're not present in the state, you have a responsibility to collect Wisconsin income tax and forward it to us. Well, what if you haven't been doing that? Okay, and that's just a simple example of of that or what happens I mean it, it could be an array of, of anything that could come up and so what you really want to do is identify the the little snags in your firm before you start selling it and you know it's sort of like you but when you're gonna sell a house this is probably a great example if you're gonna sell a house you don't let the buyer simply do the contractor inspection before you list the house, you do your own contractor inspection. You identify where the leaky pipes are, whatever it is, and you fix them so that when the buyer does their contractor inspection, they say, oh, this they've got a clean bill of health. And then they mm-hmm. then the buyer feels real confident. That's what you want to do. And the contractor inspection is the exit planner. Okay?
0: I love it. Well, Todd, I appreciate the time and the wisdom today on the show.
1: Absolutely. Uh, it, it was great, and, uh, and it, for all, all those out in listener land, uh, you, you definitely want to hook up with an exit planner um, and help let them help you through the process. <laughs> Thanks again, Todd. I appreciate it.